look at this is we've got to take a look at the Bible and say, well, what is the Bible exactly that we're looking at? Is it, if we're looking at God's redemptive pursuit through Scripture, what is Scripture? A lot of people have said that the Bible is an instruction manual on how to live. And so they put it in the category of a self-help book. That when I have problems or I need to gain wisdom or insight, I go to Scripture, I pull it out, I kind of look through there, find the verse that I feel like matches my circumstance, I read it, and that'll tell me exactly what to do. Uh, there's a great book that's been written called God's Promise Book. And in that book, it just takes scriptures and it adds it to different things that you need in your life. So if you're feeling sick, it has five or six or seven verses that maybe will help you in your sickness. Or I'm feeling down, or I'm feeling uh, I have a big business decision to make. And so there's these verses that help do that. Some people have talked about the Bible or scripture just being a good story. It gets studied in universities, right, as a great narrative and a way to look at a, a great historical story. And there's amazing lessons to learn in it, but it's really not about the lessons that you learn. It's just a great read. It's exciting. There's all sorts of things that happen. Some people look at Scripture, and, and I take this view a little bit, that really the Bible, Scripture, is a library of 66 different books. But they're all about the same subject. Now, sometimes there's arguments about what that subject happens to be. I believe it's God's redemptive pursuit <laughs> is what that subject is. There's a Bible that's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And the subtitle of the Jesus Storybook Bible is this. Every story whispers his name, the name of Jesus. And in it, it has a refrain that says this. God loves you with a never-ending, never-giving-up, unstopping always and forever love. It's the story of God, his redemptive pursuit. And over the next 13 weeks, uh, there'll be some weeks that I don't preach, that Chen or other people will preach, and in those weeks they won't go along with the sermon, but for 13 weeks, we're going to discover what God's story is in Scripture. But today, I think we're going to look at the pinnacle. We're going to look at the most important page in the story. C.S. Lewis said this, Jesus is the chapter on which the whole plot turns. And if Jesus is the chapter that the whole plot turns, then the resurrection is the most important sentence in that chapter. What is this story that we're talking about then? Every good story has a prologue, it has a conflict, it has a resolution, and it has a conclusion. And when we look at Scripture, God's redemptive pursuit, we see that as well. That prologue we see in the creation. The conflict that takes place we see in the fall. The resolution we find in redemption, in God's work. And then the conclusion is in the consummation of all time. When God is revealed as his truth, who he is, mighty, Jesus comes back and calls his bride home. There's a theologian, Bavnik, who says this. The essence of the Christian religion consists in this, that the creation of the Father, devastated by sin, is restored in the death of the Son of God and recreated by the Holy Spirit into the kingdom of God. You see, the triune God acts covenantally in history, and the Father creates, the Son redeems, and the Holy Spirit recreates. So each week, 
as we go through this series, we'll see this covenant relationship taking place. We'll see it working itself out and being revealed from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David to Israel and ultimately to Jesus. See, it can be summed up this way when we think about the covenants, this bond or this relationship that is administered to us by a sovereign God. It's a relational promise that's made. And God says this, I will be your God and you will be my people. So why do we start with the resurrection? then? Why not start at creation? Well, again, because we believe that it is the high point of this redemptive story. It is the high point of God's pursuit. There's a book by Michael Williams called As Far as the Curse is Found. And I'm indebted to that book for this series because it laid out a a good sort of categories for us to follow. And he says that this in that book. All that comes before Christ's victory in rising from the dead looks forward to it. Everything in the Bible that leads to that looks forward to it. And all that comes after the resurrection in the biblical story is an explication of it, a making clear of what the resurrection really is for us. So 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 22. What's the context of what's going on here? Well, in 1 Corinthians, we know that Paul is answering a letter that they've written to him. Right? He's giving them some answers to things that they had questions about. And so we understand that there was conflict that was going on in this church. If you ever want to see the way that a church, like if we saw the Corinth church today, (laughs) we would be like, that's not a church. (laughs) They did some crazy things. Let's just put it this way. People were getting pretty drunk during communion. Right? They were having feast upon feast upon feast. There were things, Paul says in the Corinth church, you're doing things that even the pagans say are wrong. Yet Paul still considers them a church. He's still writing them out of love. He's answering their questions. So that's the context of the letter. But what's the immediate context here? The immediate context here that Paul is dealing with is he's reminding them of the gospel of Jesus. So the first verses in chapter 15 tell us about the gospel. They remind us of Jesus' death burial and resurrection and that that resurrection is a historical fact that it's true and that he appeared to many people least of all paul who says he was born late in this relationship and so the immediate context is the gospel well what is the gospel the gospel is god's redemptive pursuit in christ that we who were enemies are now sons and daughters, and that all hinges and rests on the resurrection. So, before we really sort of delve into that, let's think about the resurrection a little bit and what Paul says here. He says that if the resurrection is not true, then all of our faith, everything that we do, even the very words that I'm saying now, are in vain. In vain. And so when we think about God's redemptive pursuit, how he's coming after us, we must hold and believe firmly that the resurrection is true, that it is grounded in history, that it was a 
earthly resurrection, right? Not a spiritual thing. Well, that they just saw a spirit, that Jesus was flesh and blood walking around. Because in that, God shows that there is new hope and new life. Peter picks up on this in his book, in his letter that he writes in 1 Peter 1.3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So as much as politicians and as much as uh, product managers and as much as educators want to tell us they have hope for us, they don't. Hope only comes in God's redemptive pursuit of his people through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This very unexpected, almost quiet event. If we go back and we read the resurrection stories, we see that nobody was prepared for it. Everybody assumed that he was staying in the grave. The apostles were hiding. Mary and the women were going to prepare him after they had followed the Sabbath. They didn't want to go during the Sabbath. They wanted to make sure they maintained righteousness, and so they didn't go. But then they went on Sunday to go and make sure he was all ready for burial because they had put him in very quickly. It was off in the distance. The only people who really saw the resurrection, not the effects of the resurrection, but the resurrection itself were Roman soldiers. And they recanted their story. As soon as they got before the Sanhedrin and the righteous people and the Roman officials, they said, no, no, no. (laughs) We were asleep, and his followers came in and they stole Jesus. Now, how do you know that if you were asleep? That's a question. But that's what went on. So this most unexpected, most quiet event that disrupted everyone. It's a historical event whose proclamation comes from marginalized people. The women are the ones who first proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus. In this time, in this place, they were marginalized. Oftentimes they weren't allowed to even have vote or they weren't allowed, their their testimony was half in the court of law. Yet that's who proclaims the resurrection first. And in that, then we recognize that as we read the resurrection accounts, that the primary first response of everyone who hears about this unexpected, somewhat quiet, proclaimed by marginalized people historical event is this. Fear. Fear. They don't know what that's going on. They don't know what's happening. They're afraid. That's why Jesus has to follow up, or the angels have to follow up and say, fear not. Now fear, in that Greek word that wants to grab a hold of the Hebrew understanding of it, because they're Israelites, they're Jews, they they have that, is that it is complete and utter discombobulation. It's not just, oh, I'm fearful, but it is complete and utter, what is going on? Eugene Peterson puts it this way. We're afraid when we're suddenly taken off guard and don't know what to do. 
We're afraid when our presumptions and our assumptions no longer account for what we are up against, and we don't know what will happen to us. We're afraid when, with, when reality, without warning, is shown to be either more or other than we thought that it was. Fear of the Lord is fear without the scary elements. They've been deleted. So what we see happening in the resurrection is the first response is fear. Many of us live there. Many of us look at the world around us today and we can't quite put our finger on what's going on. It frightens us. On a macro level, we see things that are taking place that we wish we could be able to control. And on a micro level, in our own lives, in our personal care, we look at it and go, how can I overcome this, Lord? Why is this trial happening to me, Lord? I'm fearful. But what the resurrection does is it moves us from that first response of fear, which is normal, <laughs> to a response of fear for the Lord. See, because the Lord says, fear not. Because I am at a redemptive pursuit of you. I am coming after you because I know who you truly are supposed to be. And so as I come towards you, I bring hope and I bring life. Fear not. So fear gets changed, transformed in the resurrection to fear of the Lord. Where we have this awe, this honor. We still don't know what's going on. We still are being changed and it's unexpected to us. We still feel discombobulated. We still feel confused but it is a holy confusion because Christ will reveal himself to us fully. You see, fear needs community that's built on resurrection. Fear needs us to gather together to be built on resurrection. Peterson again says this, the fear of the Lord is a cultivated awareness of the more and the other that which is beyond, that the presence or the revelation of God introduces into our lives that we are not the center of our existence, that we are not the sum total of what matters, that I don't know what will happen next, but that I have someone who does in Jesus Christ. You see, the resurrection is firmly planted in the harsh reality of fallen creation. The resurrection is not a restart, but it is the greatest reveal of God's love for us. It is not a redo, like God had made some mistake, and so in the resurrection he says, I've got to redo this over again. But the resurrection is the ultimate revelation of God's pursuit. It is the foundation of every covenant promise that God gives us. Look, the resurrection is the ultimate ancient future. In the resurrection, it grabs all the promises of God, everything that he had said to the people of Israel, everything that he had said to his church, and brings it to culmination. And it looks ahead and forward to all that God is doing and continues to do. It is the perfect ancient future, but it provides hope in the here and now. So in hope, how do we stand? 
in hope, then we, as a body, as the bride of Christ, in hope, we can be a place where people belong before they believe. Because of the resurrection and God's covenant promise there, because it is the culmination of his pursuit for us, we can be a place where people can belong before they believe. William says this, believing in something spiritual is easy. A lot of people will say, I believe in something spiritual, something beyond. It might be UFOs, it might be aliens, it might be, right? Believing in something spiritual is easy. Believing that God acted in Jesus Christ, raising him from the dead, and that his resurrection is an absolute promise that he will be victorious over sin and death and will reclaim his fallen creation in the glory of Christ's return. Now that's faith. And that's a faith that's given to us by the Father. But it plays itself out in community. And that's the reason why the hope of the resurrection gives us the ability to be a place where people belong before they believe. Because there is also oftentimes in our own lives that we don't believe the resurrection, practically. Right? We assent to it. We say, yes, the resurrection happened. But practically, we do not let it affect and mold and shape our lives. We don't live in the promise of hope that that comes with that God has relentlessly pursued us for his good pleasure. And so we should be a place that allows people to come in, to sit, even before they're able to express this faith. We should be a place that walks along with them, allows them to walk along with us before they come to an understanding of faith. Because we know that faith comes from the Father and that it's amazing and hard. It's easy to believe something spiritual, right? It's hard. It takes something other happening for us to believe in the resurrection. So the first thing that we can do in hope is we can be a place where you can belong before you believe. The, the second thing that we can do is we can be in hope people who are able to persevere and rest at the same time. So remember, Christians are not people that are either or. Followers of Christ are people who are both and. We recognize that in my heart, in my flesh, I'm a sinner. But through Christ, I'm a saint. Right? I'm both and, not either or. In the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection, we are able to rest and persevere. You see how those sound like opposite things? That I must work and strive and persevere, but I must rest. Philippians 3 gives us the answer to it this way. Philippians 3, 8, it says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His suffering, becoming like Him in His death, that by all means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. You see, what Paul here is saying is that my righteousness, my rest comes through Jesus. But in that, 
I move forward to attain. Not by my own work, but I'm able to persevere. So when hard times come, when illness falls you, when relationships are fractured, it is the hope of the resurrection that helps us rest, trusting that God is working, but persevere in the midst of those trials. Not because we're promised in the here and now something, but because we are promised before the foundation of the world, ancient, and to the future culmination, that God is in control. And He loves us. And He cares for us. So in the hope of the resurrection, we can be a place where people belong before they believe. We can be people who persevere and people who rest. And we can live as our true selves, our truth self, who God created us to be. Go back to 1 Corinthians. Paul puts himself squarely in this place. In verse 8, he says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. You see, God knows exactly who you are. He knows who he created you to be. And he has designed it before the foundation of the world for you to be that. And in that, he calls you forward to it through the hope of the resurrection. Because it's only in the hope of the resurrection that we know that the fall is accounted for. It's only in the hope of the resurrection that we know our future is secure. Paul says, it's by grace that I've been made who I am. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection makes that possible. So fourth, in hope, in hope because of the resurrection, the culmination of his redemptive pursuit for us, we can be saved. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, his life fulfills and proclaims God's redemptive pursuit on us. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall be all be made alive. Hmm. Yes, there are things that we need to do, right? But our work is not in vain. Our work has been laid out for us before the foundation of the world, Ephesians tells us. And that work is a work of devotion, not a work of duty. It's not a work in vain because this. Our work becomes a work in vain when we think that it's that work that will save us. Our work becomes a work in vain when we believe that work is what gains us righteousness or living. What Paul here is telling us is that no. It is the hope of the resurrection, the culmination of God's redemptive pursuit for us. That is what makes our work worth it. That is what makes our work worth it. So, church, those of you who follow Christ, hear that you are saved, not by your own works, but by grace. 
know that this story that we're going to be looking at over the next 13 weeks is the story of God's redemptive pursuit for you, but it is also our story. We are tied into it because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for those of you who are here who are just beginning to try and think through this, hear this. God is pursuing you. Our prayer is that during this time you stick with us, that you stay and you listen and you hear. Look, my words aren't going to persuade you. But the Holy Spirit will pursue you. Annie Lamont is a writer, and she tells her story of coming to know Christ. I can't use the words that Annie Lamont uses because she uses some words I would never use in church. But she says that as she was, pursuing, as she was trying to run away from God, God was chasing after her. And it, she said it was like a cat that followed her around. Now, she lived on a boathouse. And she said, I would wake up in the morning and there would be a cat sitting there outside of my boathouse. And then occasionally the cat would figure out a way to get into the houseboat and would be sitting in the corner. And I would walk down the street and the cat would be following me down the, down the street. And she said, finally, at one point, she looked down at the cat and said, come in. She says, that's my conversion story. That God continues to pursue us redemptively. He comes after us. Perhaps you are feeling God's pursuit. Maybe that's why you're waking up and coming to a place at 10 o'clock in the morning on Sunday instead of hanging out with your mates, having coffee or a cuppa. If it is, can I encourage you to stop? To just say, come on in. He stands at the door and knocks. He wants to come in. He has all mercy and grace for you. So hopefully this series will unfold for us and unpack for us God's covenant work. That it will unpack for us His redemptive pursuit for us. But we will always go back to the resurrection. We will always go back because it is only in the resurrection that we have hope. Let's pray. Father God, you are mighty and holy and righteous to save. You are good to us. You lead us. You call us your own. Father, let these words be your words and let them not return to you void. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.